Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, badly morning. Badly morning. Mm. It's, a bit, it's, it's a real badly morning. It's the worst kind of Monday. Mm. It is. And, you know, last week we were feeling pretty okay, pretty good about stuff, pretty positive, pretty upbeat. This morning, I'm feeling less so. And I mm. kind of have this sense of, what's the right way to put this? Impending doom. <laughs> <laughs> when I look at what's coming for the rest of this week, I'm like, this is going to be a very, very trying week for Mikel Arteta and his team, but for us as fans as well. And as much as we want to talk about how we're, we're patient and we know we need to rebuild and everything else... This feels like a week which is going to kind of kick us in the bollocks more than once. Yeah, that's fair. And I guess, um, I mean, the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruling that's just come out about mm. Manchester City is kind of, if not a kick in the bollocks anymore, given our league position, it's, uh, I don't know, a nudge in the ribs. <laughs> mm, that's a nice way of putting it because it has serious implications, of course, for our chances of, of European football next season. Uh, even in mm. qualifying for the Europa League, uh, we'd have to finish seventh in the uh, Premier League or win the FA Cup. As it stands, Sheffield United are in seventh. We're four points behind them with three games to play. One of those games is against the champions on Wednesday. And the FA Cup, you know, Cup football... We know anything can happen, but it's Man City who will be, you know, on top of the world after their 10p fine. I know it's not 10p, but it is the equivalent of a 10p fine when you consider the wealth of their ownership. Um, you know, they'll be feeling pretty happy with themselves, pretty pleased. So it is going to be a difficult week. But look, on that cheery note to start this podcast... Um, we should we should talk about what happened yesterday, I guess. Unless you've got something to add on the FFP thing, Man City, UEFA, mm. Court of Arbitration for Sport. I mean, UEFA did apply the sanctions. It was the Court of Arbitration for Sport which overturned it, perhaps because of UEFA's incompetence, but still. Yeah, and, and City have still been found guilty on at least one charge, haven't they, in terms of not cooperating with the investigation. Uh, it's just that the fine and punishment has been mm. heavily reduced. Um, it's a really tricky one. I hate FFP anyway. I think it's an absolute load of crock of shit. Like, it mm. was created, in my opinion, to keep uh, the big clubs as the big clubs. And the reason Arsenal fans 
sort of like the idea of FFP is that we don't have any money. <laughs> if, if, <laughs> if an owner came into the club and said, I'm actually going to buy £200 million worth of players, I'm sure we'd all start going, uh, oh, actually, that FFP, it's a bit strict, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Well, a load of bugs. I mean, it's fair, it would be fair to point out that there was a time where we did have a fucking enormous amount of money, a huge amount of money in the bank. The biggest mm. cash reserves in world football we had in the bank, but because of our, our, our FFP, our, our respecting of those particular rules, we didn't really use it as well as we could have. I mean, the lesson is just fucking break the rules. Just break the... Mm. That's the lesson. Break the rules and deal with the consequences a bit later and, you know, fuck it, see what happens. Maybe it's not the right way to do it. Maybe it's not the moral way to do it or anything else, but every other fucker does it. So, you know, we either get on board or we get left behind. And, you know, I think we're being, uh, we're, we're waving them away in the distance as it stands, you know? Well, I mean, I suppose the, the situation is now we don't have the money anyway. So it's kind of moot in some respects. Um, that's yeah. sort of my, I mean, we'll come back to that, but yeah. like, that's sort of my overwhelming feeling about the Spurs game and about our position where we are now is how difficult it is to change it. Mm. Um, yeah, which is gloomy. Yeah. If only we had a billionaire owner or something, that would be that would be nice. Um, yeah. When I, you know, when I thought about these three games that we had coming up this week, um, the Spurs one was, the to me anyway, on paper, I guess, the most winnable. And there's a case they're, they, they're crap. They're they're not good. That's my opinion. They won, but they're not good. Yeah, but we lost, and we're also not good. A hundred percent. There's no doubt in my mind about that. But yeah. even going into the game, the trajectories of the two teams, Arsenal sh- Arsenal should have won this game, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think we got sucker punched uh, in a way because it, it seemed clear what Spurs were trying to do in that second half anyway in terms of how they played and how they set up and they were, you know, let let us have it because they know we don't create a great deal and then we'll try and hit them on the break or we'll hit them with a set piece and ultimately that's that's the way it came out. But look, mm-hmm. let's go back and let's talk about the, the start of the game. Um, I, don't, I don't know that we really need to do much with team selection because the only... I suppose slight surprise was that Bakayo Saka didn't start and Nicolas Pepe came in. But when you're saying we're leaving out an 18-year-old, however good he is, for a £72 million record signing to play in the same position, you know, you can't really get too exercised about that particular decision, right? Um, No, I, I guess the only thing is most people probably would have had Saka over Lacazette. Now, granted, Lacazette smacks one in from 25 yards. Yeah. Um... So it's sort of difficult to contest that selection. But, I mean, I, was, I, I wanted to see Saka play. Let yeah, me be clear I, about that. Yeah. I, felt we, I felt like we actually sort of missed him, to be honest. I tend to agree with that. And I would have liked to have seen the Saka, Aubameyang, Pepe thing happen from the start. Um, but, you know, just on the face of it, when you're leaving out a young player who has played a lot, you know, he has played a hell of a lot of football, um, you know, for, for a player of the profile and the cost of Pepe, you know, you can see why a manager might make that decision. Um, the start of the game was, to me, a sign of what was to come. I, rem- I was looking at it going, you know, we've had these extra days of rest. Mm. Um, 
these players should be absolutely and utterly switched on from the start against a Tottenham team that played, what, on Thursday? Mm-hmm. The first thing that David Luiz did was lose possession to Harry Kane on the edge of our box and Lucas Moura had a shot, which Emmy Martinez made a, a good save from. 30 seconds later, Kolasinac, with his first pass of the game, gives it straight to Harry Winks. Mm-hmm. 30 seconds after that, Mustafi, who's usually pretty reliable on the ball, clumps a ball into midfield straight to Lo Celso. And I'm looking at that going, this is like all within the first two minutes. Mm-mm. And I'm thinking, this is not good. This is not <laughs> a good omen for what's to come from this game if that's the way that we're starting. Yeah, I concur. I, I spotted it too. I particularly spotted it in Louise, I have to say. His body language mm. did not look switched on to me. It almost felt like there was an extent to which he was like, well, because I'm in a back three, I'm sort of going to let the other two do the defending. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that is not an appropriate way to approach a, a game of this significance. I mean, maybe it was the significance of the game that caused it. Maybe, you know, because it was a derby and because it's White Lane, there was this sort of jitteriness among the back three that hadn't necessarily been present in previous games. But it was not uh, conducive to a stable defensive performance in any way. No, I, I think, you know, we can look at, we'll talk about the Kalasinac thing, obviously, and we'll talk about Mustafi becoming Mustafi again. He lost his inner Mustafi, but he found it. Um, it, it was a weird thing, but we'll, we'll talk about that a bit down the line. But I want to talk about mm. Louise very quickly because, you know, he's 33 years of age. He's a hugely experienced player. And... I feel like this is the kind of game where where you want him to show his experience, where you need him to show his experience and to show some of this this supposed leadership we hear about. And I, you know, I just feel like in games like this, he kind of coasts or or we just don't see that enough in these big games. Think about the way he played against Liverpool earlier in the season. Think about mm-hmm. what he did against Man City, you know, a few weeks ago. I know he didn't start that game and, and, and everything else. But in a game like this where, you know, he's been there, done that, seen that, worn the T-shirt, uh, I, I just find his performances so indifferent. There was a chance for Kane after about 10 or 11 minutes. I can't remember exactly how it came to be. I think we lost the ball in midfield. But Spurs played a simple ball over the top, and Louise had literally no idea where Kane was. And it was a really simple run for Kane. I think Martinez came out and made a good save. Kane tried to lob it over him. Do you remember? Yeah. But he had no idea where um, where Harry Kane was. And that's like 11 minutes into the game. And I remember texting you going, uh-oh, I think we might mm-hmm. get one of those games from David Louise. As it turned out, you know, it wasn't one of those games in terms of his you know, massive mistakes. But I think it was one of those games where he just isn't that interested in defending. He kind of goes through the motions and makes it look like he's doing his job. You know, he passes the ball well with both feet. He switches it to his central defensive partners, etc., etc. But when it comes to the nuts and bolts of defending, he's not on it. He's not that interested. Yeah, and I think Spurs looked at this Arsenal team and they looked at that back three and they thought, well, that's our chance. Mm. 
and they were prepared to sit in, but what they did was they kept two up against three. So they had Kane and Son playing on the break, looking for Kane long to, to, to flick it on or play Son in, in behind. Mm. And that was enough for them. I mean, if you look at the chances they created in the game, given their relatively limited amount of possession, it's significantly superior to the chances that we created. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is, I mean, part of that is our own creativity and we'll come on to that, I'm sure. But I think also it is the vulnerability of our defence and knowing that you can kind of sit in against Arsenal and they will do something to fuck up themselves. Yes, Arsenal will find a way to Arsenal. Um, OK, let's talk about our goal. I don't know that the, I mean, it's a brilliant finish from Lacazette. He really hits it with some amount of power. Uh, I think Xhaka was involved, uh, a little tackle in, in the build-up, and Lacazette took it on. Not not a goal against the run of play, not a goal um, particularly out of nothing, you would say, but but just one of those cracking strikes into the top corner. I mean, he deserves he deserves plenty of credit for, for the finish. Yeah, he does. There's actually a nice little body check from Xhaka as well, and if you mm. saw that after he wins the ball, he blocks the Spurs man from getting to Lacazette. It's a brilliant hit, and that is what he can do when all the circumstances are right for him, when the ball is directly in front of him, he can put his laces through it. Uh, listen, I was pleased for him because he's had a really difficult season and a really difficult period, and it was a fantastic goal, and it deserved... Uh, more than mm. to be forgotten as it probably will be well yeah I mean I suppose the, the one thing to point out with that goal is that it came from Lacazette being in a position where he was facing the opposition goal in the final third mm. I feel like the way that we play um, you know with Aubameyang quite peripheral um, and Lacazette having to do a lot of work uh, I feel like he plays too deeply. I don't know if that's exactly what Arteta wants, but he's got his back to goal in midfield. You know, he's not really the classic target man. He's not the hold-up guy. He's not that kind of a player. Um, so when you see him do what he did there in that particular ins- instance, you know, it, it just makes me wonder about the way we're set up and set up, uh, you know, from an attacking point of view. Yeah, it's an interesting one because when we're out of possession, um, he, you know, sometimes Pepe and Aubameyang drop right back and he is the furthest player forward. And then it feels like that inverts almost where they'll push on ahead of him. There were times in the game where they formed kind of a triangle where Lacazette was definitely the, the deepest point of the mm. three. Um, I think it is deliberate, but whether or not it's smart or whether or not it works, I think is another question. So we're one nil up away from home. Lacazette scores away from home, uh, yeah. you know, which isn't something that has been uh, in his wheelhouse of late. Was his goal? He did get one away, didn't he? The, yeah, the other Wolves. day. Yeah, against Wolves. So you know, he's kind of done something to to correct what was a, a pretty terrible record. So we score that goal, and you think, okay, consolidate, just settle in. You know, let let uh, let them come at us a little bit. Um, and see if we can hang on to this lead and then then build on it. But the goal that we conceded, James, um, I, I'm sort of at a loss for words as to just how bad it was. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I spoke to you uh, before. I r- r- expressed concerns about, say, Kolasinac's ability on the ball. And it was evident there in that particular goal. I mean, it was evident throughout the game. You know, he is the most unadventurous passer of the football I think I've ever seen. He is kind of afraid to play the ball forward when he's playing in that position. 
You know, it's, mm. it's, he just does not look comfortable there. And I think, you know, for all the praise that Mikel Arteta has been given uh, for certain things that he's done and he, he deserves it, it would be remiss not to suggest that that particular selection was one um, which he's got to take responsibility for, knowing, I mean, he must know how limited Kolasinac is on the ball. Yes, he he must. I mean, you know, I, I doubt suddenly in training he's splitting defences open with threaded through balls. Um, this is who he is. And I actually think this is the whole game, basically, this moment. Like, I, I don't want to be too reductive in the analysis, but I think if Arsenal maintain that lead for 10, 15 minutes even then I think we're talking about a completely different game. Mm. I think we just seized the initiative and, and handed it back immediately. And in games of this scale, where the, the first goal is so important, you just can't do that. You can't. No. And it, it's a terrible, terrible error. I mean, I've, I've looked at it from so many angles and tried to be like, is Louise's positioning entirely helpful to Kolasinac, et cetera, et cetera. It's a straightforward pass at yeah, the end of the day, and exactly. it gets it very wrong. Look, I'm not here, I'm, as if you've listened to this podcast from the start uh, of this particular episode, you know I'm not here to defend David Louise or anything like it, but, um, you know, it looks bad for Louise because what he's doing is he's anticipating a pass on his left foot because mm. he doesn't expect his um, his teammate to play a pass into the direction of the opposition, which is where... Uh, Kolasinac plays the ball. It's a terrible pass. He had so many more options available to him too, but the simple one, if he had to do it, was just go on to Louise's left foot. Um, you know, Louise can move the ball over towards the left-hand touch line. Uh, Son is going the other way. The pass that he makes, it's like a through ball for Son. So um, it looks bad for Louise. Uh Maybe he's beaten a little bit too easily, but I, I, I just, I can't really put any of the blame on the goal on, on Louise himself. I think it's ninety nine point nine percent down to that pass. Um, you know, so yeah, I'm- and actually, I, I think that, I think that on the day, our left side, and this is, I think, why we partly missed Saka. I felt that we just didn't have enough passing ability on that flank. To be mm. honest, generally, that started that problem started with Kalasinac. Um and I also think that Louise, uh, while it looked really bad for him, I have to say the one relief to me was that he didn't get himself sent off, which is what he usually does in that scenario. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So at least he didn't pull the guy down. I, I also actually thought, I mean, I thought it, it seems harsh because I think he's been excellent, but I thought Emmy Martinez really went very low with his dive and made Son's decision for him. I, I, um, I think so. I think what he was doing was trying to anticipate where the, the player was going. So if yeah. he'd stood up, he could have got beaten at his near post. Uh, you know, he, he tried to anticipate, and I can understand that, but I think he just tried to guess where he was going to try and put the ball, went for the low shot, and Son clipped it over him. It's a very good finish, I think. I mean, um, and also, he's in a nightmarish starting position because he's not expecting Klasnach to give the ball to the striker there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a disaster for Klasnach, um and a disaster for Arsenal to go, um, to, you know, be dragged back after... It's just, it's so demoralizing, isn't it? Because you can't even really celebrate the goal or you don't get the benefit of the goal in terms of what it means for the game when you give one up so quickly. Um, Mm. It's just so avoidable. So avoidable. Um, What next? Uh, I'm sort of consumed with like fury just thinking about that goal. (laughs) I'm just trying to think what happened in the rest of the first half. I mean, actually, I remember feeling 
uh, a little bit encouraged by some of the attacking positions we were getting into. I remember Pepe had a couple of efforts that I thought, okay, he is getting a little bit into the game. Mm. Um, I wouldn't say that that continued into the second half particularly. No. Uh, I, I, I basically watched it and thought, these are two teams who aren't particularly good. I mean, that was sort of my main takeaway from the first half, that I was really struck by um, an absence of quality in the game. Did you did you think there was a lack of intensity in the game? Uh, I felt like there was from an Arsenal point of view, and I do wonder if, you know, one of the, one of the side effects of not having... Um, fans in the stadium fans, is, is that you know maybe there is more than we think but we don't get to hear it if you like but it just felt to me like this is this was an Arsenal team that wasn't trying to take advantage of what should have been heavier legs um, from the opposition uh, you know there was a really good chance for Aubameyang wasn't there uh, quite early on I think from Bellerin a good cross from good running cross from Bellerin and he had it in a central position he whiffed it and missed the ball completely Um but apart from like a couple of speculative efforts from Pepe, maybe we didn't have much to show from an attacking point of view. No, and and actually, if there was less intensity in the game, that's something Arsenal really should have pressed home an advantage with. You know, when I say at, at the top, Arsenal should have won this game. I really factor in the recovery time that we had mm. to that. You know, and and I thought in the second half, Tottenham did look a little bit fatigued actually, and yet nonetheless. They probably finished the game the stronger. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, their game plan in the second half was to conserve energy, was to sit back, was to sit deep, let us have plenty of possession, which we did. I think we had 300-odd passes in the second half to their 80. They completed just 80 passes in the second half. However, um, let me just uh, get up the Stat Zone app here uh, because I had this ready. Um, You know, with, with those 80 passes, they created... Five shots on target to R2, nine shots mm. to R7, two big chances to R0. Um, the definition of a big chance, of course, is is fluid. Um, I would suggest that the, the chance that uh, Aubameyang had from Lacazette's pass was a very big chance. Um, but it just showed you, I think, that there is a, a dearth of defensive stability in this team. I think so, yeah. And I think in some ways, um, Spurs sort of played rope-a-dope with us, you know. Yeah. They, you know, they, they sat deep, they let us come onto them and actually that's when we're most vulnerable defensively and they recognised that. They played very, very direct mm-hmm. uh, and we didn't deal with it. And I, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, we, we can talk and talk about the defence and, and we should because they were really shown up yesterday. But I also think that our failure to do enough with those passes is a big problem. For all the possession we had, I'm not sure we looked particularly dangerous. You know, I think of that in the second half, that mm. Albemiang chance where he hit the bar. Um, but aside from that, nothing really stands out. Yeah, there was um, a free kick, wasn't there, which went wide. Um, but, you know, in terms of big opportunities or pressing home that advantage. I mean, yeah, there really is, you know, there's an issue with creativity in the team. We don't have enough creativity. There was a stat going around, wasn't there, about the big chances created by our midfielders this season. I think they all have one, apart from Lucas Torreira, who has none. And that's it over the course of a season. So absolutely, there is a case to be made for um, 
getting more creativity from our midfield and and you know there's there's an obvious uh um I was going to say solution but there's a player who people will say he can he can do that job the problem is and I accept fully that we need more creativity in midfield we need uh, players with more vision more craft um you know to I I think we've got some atta- exciting attacking players but the problem is it goes it stems from the defense for me because our defenders well, are links, so bad yeah our defenders are so bad we have to play three mm. and that comes at a cost somewhere else on the pitch and right now that's a midfielder who could potentially be uh, a creative outlet and that's the reality unless we sort you know it, it, the, the two things go hand in hand for me anyway I think that's absolutely right I would say I'm not sure we've got that midfielder anyway you know, if it's not Mesut Ozil, and I don't think it is, and I don't think Mikel Arteta thinks it is either. Not frankly. anymore, anyway, yeah. No. Um, and and Nord massively did his spell in the team suggest it was still him, I have to say. Um, you know, we haven't we, we haven't got that player. I mean, Danny Ceballos really stands out, doesn't he? Because mm. he is the only player of that ilk we have. He's kind of the only sort of... <laughs> the only... P- kind of properly creative midfield player like I think we have and he's not even that creative if you like I think he's more of a you know a guy who can circulate and and uh, you know who can penetrate with some of his passing and we've seen that and some of it has been very good but from deeper areas yeah yeah, from deeper but once you get towards that final third that that kind of area you know between central midfield and the 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 point or the the start of our attack we don't have the player in there who can do it and I know that they've been using or been trying to use um uh, Bakayo Saka there in, in training a bit uh, but again it's a lot to ask of an 18 year old and I think you're right you know people will say well Ozil started every game uh, under Arteta uh, before the lockdown which is true but in that in those games he had one assist um, you know so it's not as if he was uh, the creative fulcrum of the team in any way uh, th- that that player is missing that player is a necessity or those players even because you might need more than one you know, are a necessity when it comes to next season, whether that's in the transfer market, whether that's somebody like Emile Smith-Rowe who could fit into that team. Um, you know, he's doing a good job at Huddersfield and playing really, really well there. Um, and is that kind of a profile of player, you know, that might be the reality of our situation, James, is that we all want Arsenal to go out and spend big, but the reality might be we have to go with a young player who's come through uh, from our academy because we don't have European football because our finances are what they are. But that player, you know, however we get that player or those players, we have to get them. But we also have to fix the defense. We also have to be able to provide some kind of defensive platform for our midfield to try and control games. And unless we address the glaring issues that we have at the center of our defense, we will not be able to solve the creativity problem either. You know, Mm. Emmy Martinez, right? How much have you enjoyed him since he came into the team for Bernd Leno? Uh, I've enjoyed him. Right. This feels like a trick question. It's not a trick question. I'm just asking, why have you enjoyed him? Um, Because he is calm. Okay. But what what has he done? 
Made saves. Yes. Why did we like Bern Leno before he got injured? He, he made, made saves. saves. Sure. Like, I appreciate those qualities in a goalkeeper. But I would rather my goalkeeper was not close to being my man of the match week after week after week. Mm. And that's what's happening. That is what's happening with Arsenal. That's why we were so gutted about Leno was because we, we, we saw how important he was. He's a guy who had to make three, four, five, six, seven, sometimes more saves every game. Emmy Martinez has done really, really well since he's come in, but he's still having to make a lot of saves. I don't think we can sit here and say the goalkeeper should be anonymous. That's not real. That's, we can't do that. But the goalkeepers at Arsenal are far too busy. Mm, of course. Mm. And the XG against uh, it, for this team is bad. And it's not, to be honest, much better than it was under Unai Emery. No. Um, and, and, you know, I say that as someone who I do think Arteta has made some tangible improvements to the team, but the defence remains porous. Yeah, well, look, I think there is, you know, there's there's an onus on Arteta to do what he can with the players that he has. And I think to an extent he has done that. You know, we're, we're sitting here in the wake of a defeat to Spurs, which is always painful, and therefore your analysis is slightly coloured and there's a, mm-hmm. there's a sort of bitterness and rancour towards everything because it, it, it's a pain in the arse when you lose to that team. Um, but I think, it, you know, he has been given credit for doing more with um, this particular group of defenders than maybe we thought he could. Uh, you know, the back three, it did achieve some results. It's worth pointing out that we did go away to Wolves and win. We went away to Southampton and won with these same defenders. Um, nevertheless, you know, when you when you throw throw away a game, I'm not going to say, you know, well, maybe you do throw away a game against Spurs. You know, it's, there's only so much he can do with personnel like this. You know? Yeah. And I think some I of mean, the... Yeah, honest, I mean, individual mistakes... Yeah. Are, are the main problem here. Yeah, and I, I think as much as people want to say or, or want to criticise Arteta, and, you know, they can by all means, I think a lot of the onus has to uh, go on the recruitment. Um, you know, the players that we have brought into the club are not good enough. The defenders, certainly, that we've brought into the club are not good enough. Mm. And there's only so much any manager can do with players like that, you know? Um, I think what's what's slightly interesting is, you know, remember we talked about Xhaka and how Arteta had sort of seen the flaws of Xhaka and played in a system which kind of offset them to an extent. Mm. You know, he got it wrong with Kolasinac because what he's done is played Kolasinac in a position where his weaknesses are exacerbated, you know? And I, yeah. I think he was trying to to stick with something that was sort of working more out of hope than true belief, if you like. But I hope there's a lesson learned from, from this particular one, from this particular game, you know? Maybe. I mean, funnily enough, on, on the Shaka, I mean, I almost think that it's not that Shaka was particularly bad against Spurs, but I do think he's not been as good. Oh, that's my bell. There's your bell. Hang on. I'll go and get it. Go for it. 
James is uh, expecting a delivery, so... And normally at this point I would put in the door answering music, but it feels like the wrong kind of podcast to put in some jaunty, upbeat, slightly funny kind of music. So I'll just sit here and waffle till he gets back. Maybe I won't say anything. Just sit here thinking about our defenders. That's not a good option either. Here he is. Here he is. Hello. Hello. I was just explaining explaining to the audience, to our loyal, lovely listeners, <laughs> that it feels inappropriate to use the door answering music. Because it's I have genuinely just taken delivery of a new bin for all my dreams and aspirations. <laughs> a new bin. Yeah. <laughs> that seems very apt. I know. <laughs> seems very um, apt. What I was saying about Shaka was, although you're right, I think Arteta did massively um, sort of point out, sort of help him by by sort of putting him in an area where his, his some of his weaknesses were hidden. I don't think he's been quite as good since he sort of stopped playing that, kind of left-sided, very, very defensive role. And in a funny sort of way, you look at it and I think he would be better in the position where Kolasinac has been playing than Kolasinac would. <laughs> we had a question about that on the on the Arscast Extra last week, remember? And we said, no, yeah. no. At this point, though, you know, I would I would choose um, inanimate carbon rod out of Kolasinac. Sure. Uh, and I think... Inanimate and, carbon rod is in line for a, for a call. It sure is. Or maybe, you know, we could use Rob Holding. Can I just, just say one thing on this? This idea that you need a left-footed player to play on the left side of a bank three is absolute and utter bollocks. It is nonsense of the highest order. You can play there perfectly well if you're right-footed. So... Um, this idea that, that that's the reason or that's maybe it's part of it, but, you know, it doesn't mean that a right-footed player can't play there. So... Uh, yeah, I don't think it does mean that, but I think that there are uh, advantages to being left-footed in that part of the pitch, for sure, for sure. my money. Sure. But but you, you can do it. We've seen Rob Holding do it before. Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, I don't know. I don't really understand. And to be honest, I don't know what's going on with Rob Holding because clearly Mikel Arteta just doesn't rate him. What? I think that's the only possible conclusion. What game did he come in? Was it Wolves away? Did he play Wolves away? No, no it was Southampton. Before that. He, yeah, he came in and didn't do particularly well. Was that right? No, I thought oh, he came in quite to, well. to start a game. Yeah. Oh, after- he started at Southampton, I think. Yeah. Uh, I thought he played quite well. Look at his stats. So he played 90 minutes uh, at Brighton, and then he also played 90 minutes at Southampton. Mm. Yeah, I thought Holding was good against Southampton. I'm just looking back over the blog archive, and I, I, you know, even in the headline... Academy goals. It was Sheffield United where he came on. Impressive and holding. Amazing. Mm. Well, look, you know, Mikel Arteta's options are not great, but if Rob Holding can't get a game after what Kalasinac did, assuming that we're going to stick with a back three for the, the visit of Liverpool, if he can't get a game, then I'm really, really worried about him. Yeah. 
really I think well. he has to drop Kalasinac at this point and Holding is the obvious player to come in. Mm. If if he doesn't, I don't know what Rob Holding's done. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk just quickly about Mustafi? Um, yeah. Early in the second half, Spurs got the ball down their inside left channel and Mustafi kept pace. I can't remember who it was. Moura, maybe, somebody. Um Kept pace with his opponent, kept his eyes on the ball, stayed yeah, on his a really feet. Good piece of play, yeah. You know, anticipated the movement, blocked the cross, it went out for a corner, but it was good defending. And it was so noticeable because it's what he hasn't really done, uh, you know, historically. Um, it was like somebody flicked a switch yesterday. Mm. Literally like somebody flicked a switch and he went back to the very worst of himself. The the incident with Kane, when Kane got the wrong side of him, he just tried to push him. Um, there was another one a few minutes later. There was the cross where uh, it was Kane who went down the inside left again, and he literally slid to tackle nothing in our yeah. box. It was unbelievable what happened to him. Unbe- yeah. Like, okay, maybe it's not unbelievable, but in the context of how the game had gone and how he'd been playing... To see a guy just flip, you know, complete 180, it was weird. Yeah, I think there are two things. I think Spurs targeted him. If you think about it, what Spurs attack developed down the other flank, I can barely think of one apart from the one Kolasinac gave them the goal. So for all Kolasinac's weaknesses, I honestly think Kane pulled onto Mustafi and they looked to play in that channel and they knew... Mm that if Arsenal were chasing the game or Arsenal were pushing forward, he would get isolated there and he would panic. And that's exactly what happened. And I think the reason, in some respects, that we saw Mustafi go back to the old Mustafi was simply that he was stretched. Mm. And uh, that's how he responds to stress. And yeah, look, it it was very clear, wasn't it? It was honestly like a, like you say, a switch flicked. And as Arsenal pushed up, they just looked to go in behind him time and time again. And he had his ice skates back on. Yeah, mad, mad. It it was, it was, it was, um, it was sort of a shame in some ways because it was like, ah, the spell has been broken. Yeah. Yeah, not that I want it. Maybe not like a shame. A, maybe. But maybe not a shame. Maybe it's... In terms of offering clarity. Well, yeah. A reminder that, you know, consistency has always been a problem for him. Mm-mm. You know? Um, it's not like he's never played well before. You know? It's just that at any moment, Mustafi could Mustafi. And he fucking mustafi the shit out of those last 20 minutes. That's for sure. Um, yeah. Changes late. There wasn't much Mikel Arteta could do. We didn't have much on the bench from an attacking point of view. Pepe had come off. Saka had come on. And then, you know, when you're trying to chase a game and get a goal, when you're throwing on Cedric, Joe Willock and, and Reese Nelson, it's kind of hard to feel confident that you're going to cause too much threat to the opposition. Yeah, that just felt like a sort of throw of the dice, really. Um I, I I would have left Pepe on, I have to say. I I think that he's one of the few players in this team who can get you a goal out of nothing. And I thought, why not put Saka on the side where he's actually strongest, the left-hand side. So, so you I would thought, have, what, taken Lacazette off and put 
Saka Lacazette on? probably, or maybe Tierney. Maybe Tierney, just to give Saka a run mm. as a wing-back. But but maybe Tierney. I mean, something that, about the composition of the front three that sort of occurs to me is that in playing Aubameyang on the left, I, 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 there is a lot about it I like, but you are robbing yourself of the opportunity to put a creative player in that position as well. Mm. And he's not a creative player. He's a guy who can get on the end of stuff, but that's one less spot in your team that you've given to someone who can create. That's a good point. That is a good point. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, do you think Aubameyang will score fewer goals than Lacazette if he's playing as a centre forward? I don't think that's the case. And, yeah, if you put someone like Saka on the left-hand side... To combine with Tierney, you have some creativity. You've got some crossing ability. We know that Saka can deliver from that side. We know he's produced more assists this season than any other Arsenal player. Um, so maybe that is something that Arteta is going to have to consider. However much, however much sure. he seems to like, you know, having that that centre forward, if you like, uh, in the team, whether it's in Ketty or whether it's Lacazette. If you're suffering from a dearth of creativity, maybe you have to rethink that and find a different solution. Well, I mean, look, I think he was playing a bearing on the left when he first took charge, but he was also playing a number 10 at that point. Mm. Um, I think in this system, there's a huge creative onus on the wing backs, which I'm not necessarily convinced yet either of them are ready to sort of shoulder that burden as much as I like them both as players in some respects. I, I, I do wonder about that. And, and listen, Saka is an option on that left-hand side. I also think that there's the argument that Arsenal could really do with a player who has even more guile, like who is even more someone who uh, is about looking to open up a defence with skill or vision. You know, I, I th- if you think back to Arsenal teams that had... I don't know, a Robert Perez in the, on the wing, a Santi Cazorla on the wing. There was often that idea of sort of having a, crea- a pure creator on one, a creative player on one side and a goal scorer on the other. And I kind of, I think that Arsenal might need someone like that. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of things this team needs, but that, that might be on my list. Yeah, all right. Well, we might have a question about that uh, in part two. Anything else you want to go over in part one before we stop and, uh, you know, have a cup of poison? <laughs> um, well, actually, uh, I mean, it It sounds like you've kind of answered this question, but there was a question in the Discord that I thought, I'm going to ask Andrew about this and see what your take on it is. Okay. Um, and it was... Uh, Wise Markler on the Discord said, we just lost 2-1 to Spurs, but I'm not livid. Why is that? But you sound like you are quite livid. <sighs> Um, livid is maybe not quite the word, but frustrated. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm always, uh, everyone should be upset when we lose to them. I mean, I'm not telling anyone how to feel. I can see why we lost, you know, but that feeds into the question that I have, which I think I'll kick off part two with. And maybe we can continue this little thread of discussion in that because we're about 45, 44 minutes in now, whatever it might be. Um, I think the absence of fans is a big part of it. I'll be honest. Like imagine those scenes yesterday with 
60,000 Spurs fans yeah. enjoying it. I think that I think that would place a really different and even more painful complexion on it. Mm. Yeah. So we, at least we were spared that. Yeah. We haven't actually talked about the second goal, by the way. Oh, yeah, we should, I suppose, because it was a, a really lazy piece of defending from David Luiz, I thought. A mm. ball played down the, the, the channel between Luiz and Mustafi. Martinez makes another good save, came out well to stop it. Um, defensive organisation, why is Kieran Tierney, who is, what, five foot ten, marking Toby Alderweireld, who's six foot mm. two, six foot three? There's a comical picture um, with Louise jumping at nothing about six feet away from the ball. He's just sort of in the air jumping at nothing. He looks like an idiot. But it was it was poor, um, poor defending, uh, poor organisation. And I think ultimately that comes back, you know, who is your defensive leader? In a back three, it's the guy who's playing in the middle of the back three who should be organising. Again, your most experienced player, experienced international, you know, and um, I, I think we've got to point fingers there at, at, at the way we were set up for that particular corner. We concede a lot of goals from set pieces. Um, you I know, think we have the worst XG against from set pieces in the Premier League. I think we've got so, the worst number of goals against us. Um, Do we? I yeah. think we're third worst, but I, I, I think it's like Norwich and Villa who are both in the relegation zone who might be below us. Right. It's uh, not. It's not good. Whatever it is. I mean, actually, I, I, I think that the Spurs goal yesterday is a great. De- it's a really good delivery, you know. But I think that nonetheless, um, it's clearly a problem in the two. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a reasonable corner, but. Um... You know, you've got to you've got to be better um, and more committed with, with your defending. Uh, Orbino at Orbino on Twitter: forty five percent of the goals Arsenal have conceded this season have come from set pieces, the highest percentage in the Premier League. Mm. I think there's a reason why we signed Pablo Marie, and it's not just for his left footedness and his ability to 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 um, to play passes. It's because he mm. gives us a little bit of physical presence. You know, we have small yeah. defenders, small central defenders as well. That's Saliba is the same height, about six three. Yeah, so there is, you know, some some measure of um, addressing that or start uh, to address that particular problem. Um, organization as well. Organization is is a big part of it. Um, and look, Mustafi is somebody who's very good in the air, wins a lot of headers, but he's six foot. You know he's not a he's not a big guy in there, um, and that's something you can always get undone by. Just frustrating, you know, to lose a game to a corner, um, which should be. I mean, it's not bread and butter, but we, you know we don't we don't really threaten from set pieces, and we look very vulnerable from set pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, and the thing is, like it, it was it was most likely to be a set piece or a breakaway, and, and the goal came from a breakaway that turned into a set piece. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely on the cards, given the way the two teams were set up and given our failure to punish Tottenham when we had the ball. Mm. I mean, it's a slightly risky strategy from Mourinho, but I guess he just uh, banked on the fact that we were going to be relatively toothless from a creative point of view in the second half. 
And, you know, he does have players uh, in his side who are capable of scoring goals. Son, Kane, uh, Mora can score goals. And when you've got big central defenders um, who could stick their head on a corner like the way he did, um, it paid off for him. So we got sucker It's a risky strategy. But it's the only thing he can do. <laughs> yeah. It's the way his teams play. And it's the thing that, given that his team were you know, more fatigued than our team going in, did actually make the most sense. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's frustrating because it's a pretty limited plan. But we fell into the trap. Yeah. Annoying. Maybe I am livid. Who knows? Right. We will definitely take a break here. We're going to come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog at Arsblog, also on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog, and on Discord, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Um, I feel like a lot of the talking points have been, uh, have been done in part one, but a, another stat from Orbino is that since Mikel Arteta was appointed, Arsenal have dropped 15 points from winning positions, more than any other team in the top flight. And on the Discord, Jez Box wants to know what needs to be done about this losing from winning positions mentality. Well, look, clearly it's a trend based on that stat. I mean, I have to say, I sort of find it difficult to place yesterday's game in that context because we were in a winning position for such a fractional amount of time Mm. that it almost feels irrelevant I mean what to not do yesterday well maybe don't fucking pass the ball to their striker 20 yards from our goal would be the start (laughs) but I mean um, yeah I mean insightful uh, analysis there yeah Yeah. I'm here Monday Night Football when you need sometimes it's sometimes it is the simple thing though Sometimes it is that simple. Yeah. I mean, genuinely, I do think that sort of 
the things we praised Arteta for against Wolves, for example, having a bit more shape and structure in the team, they remain the case. But shape and structure is only so good if the individuals involved don't fuck up. Mm. And if you you only have individuals with a track record of fuck-ups to choose from, inevitably, they're going to fuck up sooner or later. Yeah, look, all defenders make mistakes, right? Every defender... There are people who would do what Kolasinac did. You know, the, the best centre-halves in the world might do that once or twice in their career. But they recover from it and they, they iron it out of their game. The problem with Arsenal's defenders is the regularity with which it happens. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I do think that we have defenders who don't cope well in kind of high-stress scenarios. Uh, and Louise is the most egregious, obvious example of that. When the pressure is on, he can come apart of the seams. And I think the same is true with Mustafi. We saw it yesterday in the last 20 minutes. I, I do just think Arsenal don't have good enough defenders. Yeah. I don't, I, it's not to absolve Arteta because, you know, our record at set pieces hasn't improved. I think... I, I sort of get the sense it's not his focus, and I understand that to an extent. But I, but I think clearly it's a problem that needs to be looked at. Um, how we all how we all yearn for the days of Juan Carlos on the touchline, pointing and shouting a lot uh, under the NI Uno Emery era. But um, yeah, we, look, it's clearly a big big issue, and he could do more in that regard. But I just think the individuals are, are crap, aren't they? Yeah. I think that, you know, is the bottom line when it comes to talking about this team's ability to defend is that personnel are simply not good enough. Recruitment has been abysmal defensive recruitment. Think about what would you give right now? What would you give, James, to have Lauren Koscielny? Mm-hmm back in this squad, even at the age he's had, even after the injury problems that he's had. Yeah, exactly. You know, he is like, you know, Mr. McGregor with a leg for an arm and an arm for a leg, and he would still get in the fucking team. You know, another level to to the other defenders in this squad. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know he fucking blew it all up when he left. And it was a real shame the way that Koscielny left the club after so many years of great service. But when you look at the kind of defender that he was, and he was far from perfect, he had his flaws as well. He made his mistakes, as we know. But, you know, most of the time, you could rely on him to do the job that he was expected to do. Mm. Most of the time, he did it very well. He was a a quick, aggressive uh, defender who was good on the ball as well. Uh, We don't have anybody even close to his level. No. In this squad, you know, and I know people want Arteta to make a silk purse out of the sow's ear and all that, but you know, I don't think fucking the world's greatest magician could come in and and make a a consistently stable defense out of the the players that we have at the club right now, and that's the re- that's the reality. That is the bottom line when it comes to our defending. Like, can we do better? Can those individuals do better? Yes, you know, nominally they can. But we've seen so you them... You don't think Paul Daniels can come in and and transform this defence? Not a lot, no. 
Wow. That, well, that is stuck. Isn't he dead as well? Is he? I think so. That's, well, if he is a real magician, he'll still come back and manage Arsenal Football Club. I think he's dead. Mm. Yeah, he died a few I, years I ago. won't be retracting that statement. No, that's fair enough. Show, show me, show me, Phil, show me. We need the magic. How magic you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Assistant manager, Debbie McGee. <laughs> <laughs> she can do set pieces. Oh, my God. Yeah, um, add some height to the team, all right. <laughs> oh, man. So, look, what about this E&D Stone? Ah, uh, Ian. I know it was horrible to watch that shit show yesterday. Yes. But would you say that the likelihood of not playing in the Europa League next season is a positive, even with the loss of income? You know, there is there is part of me that thinks if we're going to have this hard reset, we're going to have this rebuild... From a footballing point of view, we might benefit from being out of Europe completely, right? Um, in the sense that we wouldn't have to deal with midweek games. We wouldn't have to deal with Thursday to Sunday, the fatigue, the extra injuries. We could have extra time on the training ground, you know, to work on the things that Mikel Arteta would like to work on tactically in terms of his team's shape and organization and all those kind of things. I can see that. I can see that. I think the financial reality, though, is is quite pressing, isn't it? Because if uh, Kieran uh, at Swiss Ramble has done a thread on the, uh, the, the finances and the restructuring of the loans uh, by KSE last week. And, you know, this is not a, a move by the ownership to free up lots of transfer funds for Mikel Arteta. It's not. You know, it's to, to, to provide us with some liquid cash to get through a very difficult period and to make some savings in the long term. But, you know, it's not it's not a question of, right, we've done this. Now let's now give all rich. the money. Now we're rich again. We can go out and spend all this money. Get me Thomas Party's agent on the phone. Yeah, I don't think that's what was happening there. So I, I, I feel like the financial realities of not being in Europe might be might be perhaps harsher than we think. I mean, Arteta was uh, speaking about recruitment earlier in the season, um, you know, when we were sitting more or less in the same place in the table as we are right now, and the prospect of European football looked slim, and then it looked slightly less slim, and now it looks very, very, very slim. Um but he said, I'm planning two or three different scenarios uh, that we can face. Depending on one of those three, we will be able to do more, less, or nothing. And I think mm. the nothing scenario is Arsenal not being in Europe. And I think that's what we have to face up to as much as we can, we can um, see that there are footballing benefits. I think the financial, um, what's the word? What's the opposite of benefit? Uh, Downside or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Is, Restrictions. Is, yeah, yes. it's going to be very harsh. Um, unless, unless money is raised by selling players, some of whom we might not want to sell. And well, that's... That's another part of it. Arsenal 
are in a, a bind here, and I do appreciate that it is not a straightforward situation financially at the moment. But there is a real, and I wrote this effect yesterday, there is a, a, an obligation on the people who make decisions at the football club to be creative in the chance market. They have to be. Mm. They have to. You know, we all remember Rousseau saying just over a year ago, we have to outsmart the market. I mean, I think <laughs> you can really... <laughs> you know, you query whether or not that's what happened in the in the fourth coming transfer window, but mm. subsequent transfer window. But what we have to now, Arsenal have to outsmart the market, or they are going to just continue to fall behind because there are t- pl- holes in the team that need plugging, and there isn't the money available to do it, and it's going to mean moving some people on. And I think that the the head coach's attitude towards Gunduzi and Özil, by the way is clearly indicative of someone who who recognises, in my eyes, that people have to be moved on for Arsenal to be able to bring people in. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, Gendouzi, I'm sure that's what will happen. Ozil, I think it will still be very, very difficult, but I do think it, there is, again, that sort of concerted intention. Do you think we could maybe take out another stadium bond, just restructure that so we can pay Mesut Ozil his, his money and, and say thank you very much and away you go? I mean, I'm just so tired of that scenario, you know? Well, I have said, I think I've said it on here before, but yeah. it does occur to me that the money we've saved with the wage cut that he didn't take, we could just use to pay him off, which would be funny. Yeah, look, I mean, we we have to move on. You, we, you can't, though. You know, in our financial situation, no, no, we no, can't seriously justify paying someone. But you're going to pay him anyway. Million to go. Yeah, but if you're not playing him, if you're not playing him, and you've no intention of playing him. And something has happened which has, you know, left his situation. Like, you know, him and Arteta are teammates, ex-teammates. You know, this wasn't somebody who came in and was like, well, fuck this Ozil guy. You know, he he wasn't, he played. He that thing about the back, so that is quite nice of him. Yeah. He he didn't do that for Genduzi. No, that's true. But, like, if you're not... (laughs) That's an old mate's favour. You're going to, you're going to either, you're going to pay him anyway. Yeah, I mean, look, the solution. And if to you that if you play him, you're probably going to have to pay him more because he's got appearance fees and bonuses and all that kind of stuff. Mm. I, I guess the only solution to that problem is that he uh, is that Özil decides, "Fuck, there's some out of here," and at that point, he finds a club who will pay him some of what he is owed from Arsenal, and Arsenal will give him the rest. That that is the solution to that problem. Yeah, I don't. I don't believe that it is impossible for Arsenal to incentivize Ozil's departure. Like, I know he says he loves the club and all that kind of stuff, and fair enough if he does. But I don't think it's a case uh, that he would turn down a financial arrangement with Arsenal that was acceptable to him that would mean he could go and play for a different club. I don't believe he that's He won't the lose case. any money, that's for sure. Exactly. So, I, you he know... He won't lose any money. I think the stance is, is as much about pay me as anything else. But look, I don't want to have this discussion again. What were we talking about before this? Well, we're talking about financial... Oh, the financial implications of not being in Europe and, and everything yeah. else. Um, 
Yeah, okay. I think I had a, a question um, because it slightly feeds into this. It comes from the Facebook. It comes from John Stuart Hendry, and he says, I'm curious to hear your opinion on the job Edu has done so far. He's seldom mentioned by yourselves, and as far as I'm aware, he's never been very vocal in a public sense. What does he do? What do Edu do? What do Edu do? Do Edu do? Uh, I genuinely think it's quite difficult for us to assess from the outside. And that, that is frustrating to me because I, I think you'll probably remember, was very optimistic about Edu riding into Arsenal Football Club on a white horse and uh, saving us. But in that, I mean that I kind of felt that his presence around the first team might be a bit more tangible than it has been. I don't think, I, I'm surprised we've not heard, we're starting to hear little bits and pieces from him, but I'm a bit surprised we haven't heard more. And I, I think he could take the heat off Arteta a bit, any coach a bit. And I'm not sure that he or anyone else on that kind of executive committee mm. is in a hurry to do that. I think, you know, I watched the video where he um, spoke about Saka and he spoke about Martinelli and I thought he spoke yeah. pretty well and, uh, you know, he talked about the academy and the coaching that's going on at that level and I thought it was good to hear from him with that kind of a stuff. I suppose the thing I would say is that, you know, he's the technical director and as much as we might want to hear about it as fans it doesn't really make sense for a guy in that position in at Arsenal or any club to come out and say, this is our plan, this is exactly what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. I, I, I think we have to look at the efficacy of the work of somebody in that position over a period of time and say, yeah, fair. you know, has, uh, you know, have we addressed the issues? Do we have a defined style of play? You know, is the manager getting the kind of backing that he needs in the transfer market, et cetera, et cetera. Edu only arrived last summer just towards the end of the transfer window. The January transfer window, we made a couple of moves. Um, we'll have to wait and see how they work out. And then, of course, everything since then has been pretty much fucked by... Uh, the COVID-19 crisis. So whatever plans they might have had and been ready to put in place this summer have had to be uh, changed, surely. You know, there's had to be a big change in those plans. So we, we don't really have the weight of evidence uh, to properly judge what, what Edu is doing yet. No, I agree. Uh, that's what I'm saying. It's it's hard from the outside. Mm. Uh, and internally, I mean, a lot of Edu's role <clears throat> is operational. Mm. <laughs> it's dealing with, you know, other staff uh, at London Colney. And generally, I think people have a positive uh, impression of him. Mm. I, I suppose I just feel like, you know, given the... Well, given the criticism of Rousseau for the general direction of football matters at the club, yeah. I don't feel necessarily that the technical director can be exempt. No, I think that's fair. But I, you know, I, I also think we need to we need to see what they do. I mean, I think this is a, a very, very important transfer window. Um, you know, whatever happens, whatever kind of spending power we have, whatever whatever restrictions we have. 
you know, it does require it. It needs us to be more creative than than uh, becoming dependent on players like David Luiz. That is for sure. We yeah, can't I, keep I, doing these kind of easy deals which suit other people more than they suit Arsenal. No, and, and, and I think we have to be realistic within that. I mean, Arsenal aren't going to be, go out and spend one hundred and fifty million pounds, are they? Mm. No, or anything like it. No. Um, and they are going to have to make decisions on people, you know, who, who they might not want to, in order to facilitate a bit of a, a rebuild. Well, this is a, this I think is where um, part of Edu's remit comes into play, because um, he is, you know, as you said, technical director, and he talked about having a plan with Mikel Arteta, and they have to talk. They have to decide, you know, what is it they want to do with this team, and how is it they yeah. want to do it. Um, you know, what what kind of profile of player do they want, and do they need? Um, and we'll have to wait and see what they do in the market uh, to see if that's something that they're going to address. Like I, I feel like the team we're going to see... Like, I, I I, think Arteta wants to use a back four. I think he mm. wants to play with a back four. I think he probably wants to use something along the lines of a 4-3-3. Mm-hmm. I don't think he wants to play with a back three because we've touched on why and how that impacts you from a you know creative point of view. Um, so it's about getting players who can play in those positions. And it's not just two centre-halves. Of course, we need central defenders to come in and, and be part of that. But you've also get, got to get the right midfielders, you know? So what, what they do and, and the, the, the profile of the players that they bring in before the start of next season, whenever that is, it could be mid-September, apparently, um, is going to define, to a large extent, how we view the work that Edu is doing with with Arteta. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I think being realistic, it's not a one-summer fix. Certainly not in the current circumstances. It's impossible. And I I know that isn't what people want to hear. But when I look at this Arsenal squad, I look at the amount of work it requires, I look at how long it takes for these young players to be coming towards the top of their game where you know we're getting the most out of them we can they're fulfilling their potential I do think we are at least two years away from being any good mm. <laughs> that, that, that is my opinion so I, I, I think if Arsenal aren't in Europe this year I think there's a very real prospect they're not in it next year either mm. so I think Arsenal need to be in the Europa League I absolutely think they need to be I don't at all subscribe to the idea that it'd be good to be out of it. I think that is nonsense, personally. I think they need that money desperately mm-hmm. and they need the credibility. I, I, I think, and I also think if, you, if what you're doing is you're implementing a youth policy, then you need games for those young players to play. You know, Joe Willock, he's not going to start in the Premier League next season, is he? So if he's going to develop, it needs to be in a competition like the Europa League. Yeah, I mean, that's what I said, I, th- I think, on this podcast at the start of this season, that I would look at the Europa League as a way of developing young players, you know, and as and when the, the, the competition 
um, becomes a bit more intense or, you know, your chances of success are increasing, then you can start, you know, changing things around. Can I make a suggestion? Yeah. Why don't we just not do the Premier League? Because we're <laughs> fucking shit at that. <laughs> Wouldn't it be good if we could just do the Europa League? We could really focus on that. Yeah. Like, I, I, thought, I find it mad to be like, well, we don't really like the Europa League anyway. Yeah, because we're crap. <laughs> Let's not do the league. Let's not bother with it. You've got to enter the competitions and try and win them. You've got to take the money where it's available. If you're trying to fund a rebuild and you're skin, mm. and someone's saying, if you finish eight, you can have 30 million quid or seventh, whatever it is. Yes, yes, you take it. Yes, when because also when the when the fixtures reopen and there's fans in stadiums, which might happen in, to some extent towards the end of the year, then you've got another revenue stream as well. Mm. Fans coming to Europa League games, you absolutely take the money. Mm. It is absolute horseshit <laughs> to say that we don't. And you can all tweet me. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. At Gunner Blog, at Gunner Blog. Um, no, you're right. You're right about that. You know, the, the financial implications are too heavy. Too heavy. It can't, uh, you can't risk it. I mean, honestly, I think that way, mid-table beckons. Like, it, it will... The, the warm embrace of mid-table will... Season surround. after season. Not just now, but you're, you, what you're saying is sort of ensconcing yourself in mid-table. Mm, nuzzling into it. Mm. It's all comfy in there. Hello. I mean, do you want to say what you said to me off-air about uh, Abemia? Well, I mean, I think without European football, any chance we have of keeping Aubameyang is completely fucked. Right. That's what I said, yeah. Well, we'll have the European football then. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm being slightly facetious and I know that, you know, Chelsea won the league because they didn't have European football. They also went and bought a load of players who were really good. They bought N'Golo Kante, which we didn't do because it was expensive. You know, so... Uh, Yeah, and they also have the owner who can just completely offset the financial implications of having no European football. There was no cost to them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, maybe it was a bit tougher for them to fulfil FFP requirements. Oh, well. (laughs) That doesn't matter. They seem to have uh, worked that one out. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I mean, maybe I'm wrong and maybe Arsenal would go out of Europe and we'd just play a load of sort of school children every game. And we turn out brilliant at the end of the season. But somehow, I suspect not. Here's a question from Ronnie, who's at Ron is great on Twitter. <sighs> what does Ronnie want now? What's this going to be? He says, hey, give the man a chance. <laughs> He's providing us with a slightly upbeat moment in this particularly... Right. here we go. That's what I want, Ronnie. Right. I love you, Ronnie. Thank there you. There you go. Don't prejudge, James. He says, should we, in a strange way, be, be comforted by the fact that our problems, unable to keep a lead, unable to kill opponents off, our defence, are so clear? We know what we have to do. We just need to do it. I, do you know what, Ronnie? I love that. I absolutely love that. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to say yes, but... Three managers and 10 years or something haven't solved those problems. So maybe it's not as straightforward as I... Oh, it's very much a case of easier said than done. But it's not like it's a complex puzzle for any fucker to work out, is it? No, I mean, it's literally our job to say it rather than do it. And it's pretty easy. 
Yeah, um, we can do that part. The, the coaches have got a tougher task. Yeah, we do that part, and then we just need someone else to do the doing. I think, um, yeah, maybe. But 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 the problem is that like there was a time, as you alluded to, where Arsenal probably could have gone and bought a really good, expensive centre back. Well, we bought there an expensive one. It just wasn't very good. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, there was a time when Arsenal could do that. I'm not sure that time is now. So all we can do is pray. Full stop. Mm. No, it's, it, all we can do is pray that William Saliba is half the player that he's hyped to be. I mean, the, the, uh, can you even fathom the expect level of expectations on this kid? The level of expectations on William, Franz Beckenbauer, Paolo Maldini, Tony Adams, <laughs> Saliba? No, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it is kind of incredible. The, the only thing I'd say about the defence is the there sh- are two defenders that we don't know very much about who are six foot three and have been signed in Pablo Marie and William Saliba. Yeah. The, uh, the, and, you know... For, for, for as much as like we could look at the creativity and go like, oh shit, we haven't got anyone there. In theory, we have bought some tall, not terrible defenders. In theory. Yeah, everybody was kung fu fighting on the Discord said, how much different do you think the restart would have been if uh, Marie hadn't got injured? We didn't see much of him, but surely he passes better than Kalasinac. Uh, yeah, I mean, in fairness, there are old men with urinary tract infections who can pass better than uh, Kolasinac. And he said, it's hard to see six foot four of him getting beaten so badly on the header for their second goal. Or am I just projecting onto him like I'm picturing uh, Saliba to be the next Van Dyke? Who's he saying six foot four? Kolasinac? He's, he's mistaken, if so. No, Marie, 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 Marie. Oh, Marie. Yeah, you know. Uh, I honestly don't know how good Pablo Marie is. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, really don't. Um, he could be excellent or he could be very, very average. And it may be... I mean, the fact that Arteta wanted to start him at City, I think, is encouraging. But I think it might say as much about our other centre-halves as it does about Pablo Marie. Nevertheless, physically, in terms of his size, he does bring something that we don't have. Mm. Um I mean, the problem is, how many more centre-backs can we buy? We've got a thousand centre-backs. Well, we just need to... We're making centre-backs out of people who were full-backs in Klasenach. We're turning, we're creating centre-backs all the time. Need to get rid of some of them. We did our stick we and really twist. We really do. We did our stick and twist on the last podcast. We did our stick and twist. But I mean, does anyone remember Socrates? Is Socrates worse than these? I, I forgot. I genuinely can't remember. Like is he's he worse not, than he, these guys. He's not worse than um, Kalasinac. No way. Um, he's not a worse passer than Kalasinac. I don't think. Absolutely not. Um, is he as two footed as David Luiz? Maybe not. But he's a committed defender at least. Yeah, he likes it. I mean, listen, I'm not calling... I don't think he's the future. I don't No, think no, he's, he's not, but... Uh, I just sort of... I'm sort of staggered by how many centre-backs we have and how unsatisfactory most of them are. Um, mm. it, 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 
all that tells you is the recruitment is terrible. Yeah. Or we turn defenders even more terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, look, I, I, yeah. But listen, I mean, maybe, I mean, if I said to you next season, it's a back four, it's Marie and Saliba. How do you feel about that? Well, I feel pretty fucking great because it's not Louise and it's not Mustafi and it's not Kolasinac. That's, mm. you know, that's kind of how I feel about it at the but moment. Equally, we, we really don't know. But we have we? no I mean, idea, you know, but, you know, give those guys 10 games, few mistakes and people will be, you know, will be worried again, you know. So, I don't know. I mean, it is the, the thing, if you keep picking the players who make mistakes, what can you expect other than days like yesterday, you know? Yeah. Well, the buyers will be queuing up around the corner. Mm. I'm sure. For our lads. I'm sure. Getting the old checkbooks out there. (laughs) Can you write a a check for no pounds and no pence? Is that possible? (laughs) Oh, man. To do the barter system. Give you this fucking 14 bags of weed killer for David Louise. Okay. No problem. Grand staff would love that. What about my bin at centre half? What colour is it? Um, it's like silver bin. Be a bit like those Man United shirts. Remember when they went to Southampton and they nobody could see, see the shirts, couldn't see each other. Nobody would see bin. Nobody would see uh, bin. Okay, fair enough. Maybe not the bin. Maybe not. Um, How are you feeling about Wednesday? Uh, do you know what? Actually, not not as bad as I probably should. Only because Liverpool did Liverpool draw at the weekend. Yeah, they did yeah, against with Burnley. Burnley. Yeah, who to be Burnley are actually going okay at the moment. But mm. I mean, I, I think um, in theory their season is done, isn't it? Liverpool, they can chill out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're on the beach, you know. But I mean, Liverpool on the beach is probably still better than us. Uh, the grindstone. Um, but I, I don't feel as bad about that as I do about Saturday. The I've FA got Cup. all bad feelings about the FA Cup game, yeah. Can I just <laughs> state for the record here that quarter to eight on a Saturday night is a fucking bullshit time to play an FA Cup semi-final. It is absolutely a load of bollocks. Is that when it is? Yeah. I mean, what the fuck? Quarter to eight. Quarter to eight on a Saturday night. It's shite. It's going to be dark. <laughs> oh. No. No, it won't, actually. It's summer. Oh, yeah. But, but yeah, that is a bit odd. I don't like that. But, but I mean, I watched City play Brighton. And let me tell you, all that spending money and cheating, it gets you some good players. Mm. And they still have a season. Um, they're all still engaged. They're all still focused. It's, uh, They're still in the Champions League as well, aren't they? Th- yeah, th- yeah. So, I mean, City could win two trophies? Three. Still? They won the League Cup. Oh, they won the League Cup. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, Wednesday, I I weirdly kind of think we might do okay because we're at home and they're not bothered. What do you think? Um, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. 
I mean, can I put it like this? Yeah. It depends on if any of our defenders do anything fucking mental. <laughs> if they don't, we might do all right. That That's reasonable. I wouldn't argue with that at all. I wouldn't <laughs> argue with that at all. I mean, that, that, that must be. Imagine what it's like to coach these guys. You know, and you spend all day, work, all week, working on training, formation. This is where you stand here. This is where you stand here. And then one of them just passes it to the other team striker. And you think, you uh, fucking cunt. After all we did on the training ground, you go and Genuinely, you surely would, wouldn't oh, you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know that you come out in the press conference and you go, the commitment of these boys. The boys did well, yeah. Can't fault their they, commitment. You know, if, as we, if we keep playing like that, we, we, we really go far. But surely Arteta is smashing his head against the wall. This is why I'm not a football manager. This is why. That's the only reason. That's the only reason why, because in the press conference afterwards, I'd be like, yeah, I mean, it was going okay, but then that fucking idiot did that. And frankly, I'm going to kick his hole in. And then there would be uproar. There'd be uproar. Because, yeah. What about the other end of the pitch? I mean, I've not actually got a specific question for this, but are you concerned that we're not doing enough in our attack? We're not making enough chances, given the, the amount of ball that we're having? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, quick, that was quick. Right. I don't know how we well, fix it, though. thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I don't know how we fix it. I don't know how we fix it. The only, the only way to fix it is get an extra player in that area of the pitch, or like yeah. you said, move Aubameyang to the centre and you can put two creative players outside him in Saka and, and Pepe. It's still quite... You, you know, it's very top-heavy. It's not weighted properly through the team because you're looking for some kind of, some way for those, you know, you've got your, your wing-backs and you've got um, your two central midfield players, only one of whom is slightly creative. But I think the the obvious solution is a formation shift and to put an extra player uh, in your attack or, or, you know, closer to the attacking uh, third of the pitch. But that means a back four, and that means picking two central defenders. I suppose, though, if you were to pick two rather than three, it almost lessens the chances of a fuck-up because there's only two of the cons out there. That's true. Drop class snatcher and replace it with the striker. Yeah. Problem solved. No, a midfielder. I mean, yeah, yeah it's... it's uh, it's a point. And actually, if you have three midfielders, you know, one of them can be a guy who drops in to, to, the, to make it a back three at times, um, like Fernandinho does sometimes. Like Xhaka did when we were playing a back three earlier. Or even if you've yeah, got someone yeah, like yeah. Lucas Torreira as your, your, the base of your midfield, someone who can protect um, the back four from that position. So yeah. it's just who, which two do you pick? What about this from Stephen Killick, who says, are you concerned that if we lose to both Liverpool and City, which is fairly likely, he says, mm-hmm. could Arteta be under significant pressure? For what it's worth, I think taking everything, everything into account, any pressure would be unfair at this stage. But... I mean, will there be people criticising him? Absolutely. Will, will there be people saying he's the wrong man for the job? Absolutely. Because that's the way that... that um, people react to defeats. I think we just have to, you know, it's it's really difficult. It's easy to say, 
he's he's barely been in the job six months. In actual terms of doing the job, it's it's is it even six months? Because he got like December to March, and then there was the lockdown from March until June, and now we've had a month. So he's like four months, just a little over four months into a job, which everybody I think accepted was a really really difficult one, really difficult. You know, he came into a club which had been, you know, was it was in a fucking mess, mm. absolute mess. And we can all see that and we can all understand it and rationalize it. But, you know, people react to results. I think it would be wrong personally for him to be under pressure. But the reality of of fan sentiment is that, you know, if you lose games, you're under pressure as a football manager. That's just the reality of it. I personally, as much as I won't like it if that happens and I don't want us to lose games and I hate us losing games and, and everything else. I don't think we can really start to judge Arteta's work until next season. I really don't. I, I think it would be unfair um, to make definitive judgments on what he's doing in the circumstances, the weird, weird, trying, strange, surreal circumstances in which he has taken over this football club. Mm. You know, and at least, however people want to take this or not, at least he recognizes that there are significant issues for the club to to correct and to get right. And that is, you know, that's at the core of it is what gives me optimism about Arteta. Whether he can do it, we don't know yet. Whether he'll be given the resources and the backing by the club itself and by uh, the people at executive level, we don't know yet. But it just, it to me, it's not right... Um, to judge even if we lose these two games and it's going to hurt and people will be pissed off. I understand that. But you have to look at it, you have to step back and look at it from, you know, from a, a more objective position. That's just my my feeling on it. And look, if we lose to Liverpool and City, I mean, we'll lose to a couple of very good teams and if you're asking me if either of their managers could do a better job at Arsenal than the one we've currently got I'd say yeah probably they're probably the two best managers in the world I'd love one of them mm. but we're not getting someone like that <laughs> we are not getting someone like that yeah. and you know of the options we have available I mean <clears throat> Mourinho was linked with Arsenal wasn't he in November and I have to say congratulations to Spurs they won that game I do not want to watch that fucking team play no. They are. It, it's dreadful stuff, and they'll, they'll be they'll be loving it. They won the derby, great. If you saw them play against Bournemouth, if you saw them play against any other team this season, mm. certainly since the restart, they have been absolutely abysmal. Yeah, and it's not even the results; it's the style of play. I would take Mikel Arteta over Jose Mourinho. To be honest, even if Arteta isn't that good. <laughs> But I would, I, I think we absolutely got the better half of that deal. And I actually do think that in the longer term, Arteta will will win that war. I, I really, really firmly believe that. I know not everyone does, but that's my personal conviction about it. Mm. Um, and I, I felt no envy of what Spurs were doing. It, you know. Yeah. It, they, they won the game, but they're not going anywhere in a hurry. Yeah, look, I think we... we, we there's a there's a thirst for success and a thirst for progression and a thirst for improvement 
which I think is completely and utterly fair. Yeah. But I also think that needs to be done within a realistic time frame. You know, I'm I'm not saying when I say this, by the way, I'm not comparing Arteta to Guardiola or I'm not comparing Arteta to Klopp. But these are two very experienced managers who, when they took over at Liverpool and when they took over at Man City, took some time to get into the job properly and to 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 build the teams that they wanted to build. Right. And they'd and they'd done that process several times elsewhere. Correct. Correct. So if people are calling for Arteta to be sacked after four months in the circumstances in which he took over and everything else that's going on, it seems ludicrous to me. Just ludicrous. So, you know... And and in fairness, I don't think there's a lot of that about. I don't think there's a lot of people saying, sack him. I think there are people with questions and I think that's fair because... Yeah, absolutely. He's a bit of an unknown. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think the two results this week, however... Um, painful it might be, will define his ability to do the job that we all hope he's going to do. Maybe the manner of the games or performances or results might change people's perspective on that. But, you know, realistically, do you expect us to beat Liverpool, even though they're switched off? No. No. Do you expect us to beat Man City, even though we haven't beaten them since 2015 (laughs) and every time we play them, they win 3-0? No. No. Absolutely not. Oh, we did beat them in the FA Cup semi-final. We I did. Point we did. Out. Yeah, we did. But we had Nacho I mean, Monreal there, who's a you know a proper defender. By the way, another proper defender that we lost. There is a there is another enough. piece of fucking squad building. There's another piece of squad building. Let let Nacho Monreal go for two hundred and fifty grand. We had to pay Ozil's wages. That one hundred and fifty grand so we, we got for Nacho Monreal. How old is Monreal? 33, 34? Uh, yeah, something like that. He's I mean, he 34. wanted to go, but yeah, we didn't have to let him. No, we just took up the year on his contract in uh, the previous January. You know, there's your squad building. Think about Natural Monreal in the back three. Yeah, really good player. Mm-hmm. I thought. I mean, I know. He, I know that he. Uh, struggled to play fullback in a four a little bit in his last season because he was getting older. Mm. But, you, you know, he is better than a lot of what we have now. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. 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 James. Yeah, we, know, we know. Shall we put an end to this? Have you got a gun? <laughs> I thought we could just stop recording, but, you know, if you want to oh. if you want to go down the murder-suicide uh, route, you know... A, a first for podcasting, perhaps live on no, air, listen, but maybe we'll. Uh, listen, listen, it's all fine. It's all fine. Listen, I mean, look, it, it hurts, doesn't it? Losing mm-hmm. your derby is is shit. It is the worst feeling. Mm. And actually, I have to say, I looked at this Spurs team with Mourinho, and there, were, I had that horrible feeling of like Moises United. Do you know what I mean? When yes. we couldn't beat them. Exactly. Exactly. And it, that's why it hurts. It hurts because we couldn't beat this Spurs. Yeah. Well, on that nah. cheery note, on that yeah. cheery note, we will leave it there for now. Uh, and thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you for being here. We know it's not always easy. It is out of our hands. We do our best um, to uh, provide some analysis, some entertainment as well. And hopefully we've done that in this particular podcast. The sooner this goddamn fucking shit 
pipe of a fucking season is over, the better, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, well, that's wrong. Three more league games. Three more league games. But, you know, maybe Probably I want to... one more cup game. <laughs> I, I want two more cup games. I'm sure the sooner it's over, the better. No, the longer it's over, the better if we can possibly get ourselves into the FA Cup final. And who knows? Who knows? Um, I wouldn't put too much money on it. But look, thanks as ever for being here. And we will catch you on the next one. Bye bye. <laughs> Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.